coming up on Art Palace. I, I think you hit upon a very uh, critical idea, which is that the part is as much a part of the whole mm. as the whole is a part of the part. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Anu Mitra, one of our docents who joined me to take a look at the special exhibition, The Fabric of India. I'm here uh, with Anu Mitra. Did I say your name right, by the way? Y you did say it right. Okay. I Thank mean, you. You, you don't have that many syllables to that's like right. mess up, so yeah. that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. A nice thing about having a short name is people yes. can't really slaughter it too badly, but right. I know people put stresses on weird things sometimes. Right. So, yeah. um, so we are in the Fabric of India exhibition right now, mm -hmm. and we're standing, uh, right when you come in the exhibition, you have this sort of uh, beautiful uh, wall hanging and a uh, piece of fashion next to it, and then right across from it is a map and so we're looking at that map right now mm -hmm. and I guess my claim to fame is that I'm a docent at the Cincinnati Art Museum yes and I'm so proud to be one and I'm also of Indian descent yep. I was born and raised in India in a city called Kolkata in West Bengal that's okay. where the Cincinnati Bengals gets its name from <laughs> yeah honestly from the <laughs> yeah, state of Bengal like a Bengal tiger yeah, yes yeah. exactly so uh, the map of India here it is um, lots of pockets of expertise in terms of where um, fabrics are produced they are created and designed and woven processed dyed the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. And actually, I say the nine, nine yards because that's the <laughs> average length of a sari yeah. that Indian women wear. So India is a big country, lots of states, lots of uh, diversity in there. One third the size of the United States. I was just about to ask, yeah, yeah. like if you were to fly from Kolkata down to the tip here at the bottom, mm -hmm. like what, what? how long would that take you probably? Uh, from here to here would probably be about... Uh, three and a half, four hours flying time. Yeah, so it's... it's so but, yeah, from the top to the bottom, from Jammu and Kashmir yeah. to the bottom is about 2,000 miles, give or take yeah. a little bit. And from the west to the east, uh, that is about, uh, what, 1,600 miles? Okay. So it's a big country. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's very three large. of these would fit inside the United States. Yeah. Um, so I was born and raised in Kolkata, and I lived there till I finished my... Uh, bachelor's degree and then I came to the United States as a student and the rest is history as they say but I feel very rooted to my home country and uh, over the last several years without dating myself I want to tell you that I've been away <laughs> from the country for almost uh, what well close to 40 years let's say oh, wow yes and so I've gone back twice a year every year Really? And my passport is littered with uh, stamps from India and yeah. stamps from Cincinnati, Ohio. So um, this, this is a very, very diverse, multicultural uh, nation. Uh, it has been invaded many times. 
you know, the Portuguese came in here in the 1400s. The Mughal Empire came in here. Before that, uh, you know, I'm not going historically, uh, Alexander the Great, lots and lots of different mm -hmm. invasions. And that's why when you see people from Indian uh, heritage, from Indian origin, you will see Northern Indian people very uh, uh, big-shouldered, very tall, very chiseled features, sort of like the Gandhara sculptures of uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Okay. Uh, and then in the South, they are much more native. This would be people of Dravidian descent, much more uh, darker skinned, shorter, stouter. Hmm. So that's the genetic uh, uh, belonging that we impute to people from these regions. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep moving okay. along here. And uh -huh. let's kind of, so it, we're just going to kind of walk through the show and maybe stop and talk at a few interesting things to mm -hmm. us. So the first thing, um, the first kind of part of the show is really all about processes mm -hmm. and about um, dyeing, the production of silk, which, you know, we have these great little cocoons here that mm -hmm. I love seeing. And, yes. and actually this video that's here, I thought was really fascinating um, to watch uh, these women sort of unspool cocoons. Mm -hmm. It just, I don't know, like, I was just so unaware. I mean, I understood where silk came from, but until you see somebody do it on the actual cocoon, it's just, it just feels so, like, alien or something. You're just like, oh, yeah, that happened somewhere. And now I'm, like, watching this man dump out a bag full of yes. thousands of cocoons. That's right. That's right. So the, the thing to remember about uh, the fabric of India is that it is almost like an oral tradition. It's been handed down family to family, village to village, for almost four or 5,000 years. And it relates to the making of uh, cottons, mm -hmm. making of silk, and everything in between. And so the thing to remember about this amazing exhibition, which has come from the Victorian Albert, thanks to Cindy M. Mears, is that the Indian uh, craftsman, craftswoman, was an absolute expert in the uh, spinning and weaving process. Mm -hmm. So actually making the cloth, the um, designing of the, the icons, the symbolism that we see, and the dyeing process. And in fact, in all of this, in all of you know, getting the cocoons, you know, uh, uh, rearing them, really like like a child yeah uh, and uh, you know steaming them and m making the threads come out of the salivary glands of these larvae that are in the cocoons and then spinning the yarn and knowing how much to to get out of the uh, cocoon so that it is a single thread which is then woven in all of this process the the method of fixing the color to the cloth this is where the Indian fabric designer, the fabric artisan and craftsperson really uh, executed their expert yeah. knowledge. Well, we can kind of walk over here because we have some examples of those colors and some of the um, the materials used to make some of the colors. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. So over here we have like the indigo. Yes. Yeah. So the indigo is absolutely, uh, you know, the, the iconic dye. And again, the mordant that was used, mordant, the chemical natural, the, the, the natural substance, it's not a chemical substance. Mm -hmm. The mordant is the natural substance used to fix the color to the cloth. Right. Okay. And so this is where they 
sort of manifested their expertise. In terms of the indigo, this is where India gets its name from indigo, from the word indigo. And this was absolutely amazing uh, as a plant material and what the Indian craftsman was able to get out of that knowledge. So here is an, uh, a, you know, a, a pictorial uh, representation of the plant itself, the indigo plant. When it's in full sunshine, the indigo color is light blue. Mm -hmm. When it is shaded, the color is dark. Mm -hmm. This is the only color that does not need a mordant. So when the the you know when it is processed in a way that the dye is fixed, then it is uh, you know the cloth is uh, uh, boiled in this material in this indigo solution. And when it emerges, it's and it hits the oxygen in the air. When the color is oxygenated, then it fixes to the right. blue. Yeah. yeah. And so there are various kinds of blue. Um, like I said, indigo does not need a mordant. Um, the blue color, the light blue shades, the dark blue, the velvety blues, etc. And so they are able to calibrate. Yeah. In terms of the red, the lac, you know, uh, the che roots or the lac which is the plant, the, right, the yeah. insect, which settles on a plant and gives off this resin from its own body, which mm. creates the color. So that would need a mordant, right. the substance that would help the color stick to the cloth. And turmeric, which is a big thing in the West now because it helps, helps in the easefulness of joints and other part, parts of the body as the body ages. Um, these are also used to make the red color for the lac and the che roots and the yellow color for the turmeric. Right. And of course, mixed with indigo, you get greens, you get different kinds of hues. And this is where the mordant would be used. And this is also, you know, something when we were just talking about the history, this is, you were saying the color is where India really, you know, could show off. And mm -hmm. that's what they were really coming up with colors that nobody had made before, right? I mean, nobody that's... had made, and this was 2000 BC, yeah. or even before that. The other thing to remember about color and moderns, dyes and processing and all of that, is that the colors are fixed. Mm. They are not going to fade as you wash the clothes. So this kind of chemistry, this chemical expertise, uh, you know, really knowing the material, knowing the natural resources available to them, and then using natural substances to fix the color to the fabric. That is incredible. And this, all this was uh, expertly conceptualized and ex executed uh, 2,500 yeah. years before the common era. <laughs> so that is pretty so mind-blowing. It's very impressive. Yes. Now, we, we can keep moving on, but as we're walking, I'm just kind of curious. You know, growing up in India, were you sort of aware of the importance of these processes or, or what kind of sense of it did you have, I guess? I, I'm just kind of curious, like, it, it just seems like these things that I'm completely unaware about. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I was aware of these processes. Uh, mm -hmm. And when we go into the nationalism, the protest mm -hmm. uh, area, I'm going to tell you a little bit of background information on my grandmother and what she did with her saris. Uh, but something like this, which is the ikkat print, right. where the warp and the weft are woven in particular ways to provide designs. And these are 
uh, iconic designs that have existed in the visual field for thousands of years. In fact, I'm wearing a, an Ikat shawl today just for your, <laughs> uh, just so that you can touch it and yes, see it. Yes. And so you see the iconic, the you know, the traditional designs, and this is juxtaposed with a much more modern design mm -hmm. to make it right. modern and relevant. I also had you smell my shawl, Russell. <laughs> you did. <laughs> yes. And and your impression of the smell? It, it was maybe not my favorite smell. <laughs> yes. Thank you for being so kind in your description. Um, it smells really bad because it's all vegetable dye. Yeah. There is nothing chemical or synthetic about any of this. That's so interesting. That I, I, you and that was something I'm glad you brought that because we were talking about. That's one one thing you don't get to do at the museum exhibit is smell yeah. the fabrics. They Exactly. They don't want you really getting that close usually to give a, get a good whiff of things. Yes. So. so I bought this shawl, the one that I'm wearing, uh -huh. from uh, from an artisan in Madhya Pradesh about three years ago. Okay. And when I first bought it, I could not wear it because it smells so bad. <laughs> and uh, from airing it and yeah. just keeping it uh, aired in the house, in my house, I was able to get rid of that smell and then start using That's it. That's so funny that you have to like have a period of like, well, I can't wear this right away. We're going to yes. know I'm going to have to build in a year before I can wear it. Exactly. To let off the exactly. And for people who are on the, um, who are listening in, who have no experience of what it smells like, it really smells bad. It smells like a child's throw up, for instance. Oh gosh. When you said that, you're right. Yes. <laughs> I didn't really try to like place it with another smell, but yes. now that you say it, you're right. Yes. Yeah, so I ask your forgiveness and smelling really bad today, Russ. Oh, my gosh. Well, luckily, it's not that strong. I, yes. Yeah. I, I had to get my nose right up on it before <laughs> I could really smell it. Yes. So these are different, uh, um, uh, you know, designs, different uh, ways in which the fabric is treated, embroidered. There is baluchori. There is palampuri. There is uh, ikkat, of course. Uh, and, then, and I'm going to interrupt you real yeah. quick because the thing about ikat that I don't think we talked about um, mm -hmm. is that what I thought was really fascinating about it is the threads are dyed before being woven. Correct. And that's so crazy. I did not know this was a thing people did. Right. Um, because if you look at these designs, I mean, they're, they have pictures in them. They're not just abstract. They right. Have, I mean, they have little like decorative abstract shapes and stuff too. But the, this one we're looking at has elephants on it, it has mm -hmm. flowers, it has birds. And so those threads were dyed as threads, mm -hmm. stretched out, and then they have to plan it so well that when it's so woven well. together, it creates an image. It creates an image. The, the birds, the elephant, uh, the elephants, whatever you see. Uh, if we had to relate it to something in, in the modern world today, for uh, uh, fans of this show called The Survivor, which mm -hmm. I see with my son a lot, um, you know, it's like a group project where if one person drops the ball, then the whole thing comes to waste, the whole right. effort. So this is, this this uh, the Ikkat Sari or the Ikkat Shawl would have like six, seven, eight people handling the process, mm -hmm. you know, different threads, different designs, the wharf, the the weft, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. And it, it's like surgery. It has to go completely uh, as planned. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really impressive. It's really impressive. And yes. It, it's one of those processes that I learned about from the show that I, again, I had no idea about. 
-hmm. this bright, we're looking at this uh, sari here. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's, it's not draped over a mannequin. It's just it hanging up, which mm -hmm. is, that is such a fascinating thing about the sari is like, when you just look at it, it's just a big, really long piece of cloth. Yes. But it's like, it becomes something so magical by, right. by folding it or, you know, draping it in the right way. Right. And so, but it's got this gorgeous, like hot pink almost. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what's the year on this? Uh, this is uh, 1867. I mean, this looks so new. So new, right? It, I mean, so I guess I, I don't know. I mean, it's it just we think, especially in in you know in the in Western world, when we think of 1867, maybe because we only have black and white photographs. Yes. I mean, that's probably a big part of it. We think of it as so drab looking and right. dark. And, and to think of these colors coming out of India, like yes. that's this. I mean, it's yes. just so gorgeous. So gorgeous. And uh, again, you know, um, the sari is sort of like, like architecture. Yeah. Uh, it uh, forms a sculptural piece around all kinds of body types. Mm -hmm. It's nine yards for the most part. And there are more than a hundred ways in which to drape a sari. And the, the way in which it is most commonly draped with the pallu going over the left shoulder uh, allows for a lot of space, okay. um, especially in the leg area. And that is because, at least in Kolkata where I grew up, it is about 110, 120 degrees mm -hmm. Fahrenheit in the summer with almost 100% humidity. So you need a lot of cool airspace right. and flow. Uh, no one in their right mind, especially a woman in my generation, uh, would wear pants and things like that because it was too constricting and too unnatural to wear in that hot weather. Um, and of course, the, the South Indian sari styles that you see over here, the designs are completely different from the North Indian. Mm -hmm. And so that is something else that uh, one can see as one well, goes Well, and, and looking at that map, mm -hmm. you know, you can see the huge distance there. So yes. it's easy to understand the cultural differences you would have all the way across, like, such a huge, vast country. It's like, yes. it's easy to imagine, like, well, yeah, somebody all the way at the bottom, uh -huh. you know, is doing something totally different from somebody Correct. all the way at the top. Correct. So the temple architecture of the South would also be reflected in the designs of the South. Oh, really? Yes. Um, and it's really quite remarkable. Yeah, this area over here, we're kind of walking through a part that has a lot of ornamentation and um, things. And this is one of my favorite parts of the exhibition is um, this little, uh, it's like a border for a dress is what it's called here. Uh -huh. And if you didn't pay attention to it too closely, you would just think, oh, it's very beautiful green very beautiful. sequins yes. that are like, you know, making this very pretty uh, flower, flowery, ornate pattern. It feels very European. Uh -huh. um, and... And then when you like read the description or even just the materials, you see cotton muslin with beetle wings. Yes. <laughs> so these are all little beetle wings. That's right. Just so, so crazy. So crazy. And, uh, you know, nature is so magnificent. Um, you know, there, there is so much color in India. Yeah. Um, and I don't know exactly why that is so. Maybe a sociologist or an anthropologist would... Um, give us better, um, um, you know, insights. But my insight is that with a country of four billion people, billion with a B, mm -hmm. um, and with so much poverty and uh, such a distance between the people who have and those who have not, life is so stark mm. at many levels. And that's why at all levels of society, you see this infusion of amazing colors, mm. of hot pinks and 
oranges and greens and the silver and the gold that you see, which is woven into the cloth. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of color and a lot of joy expressed through the daily interaction with color. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously, whatever it is, but uh, um, it, it's a very nice way in which to relate to your environment. I've never been. I've never been to India, but it, whenever I've been to sort of hotter climates mm -hmm. and, and other countries that are closer to the equator, mm -hmm. I feel like the natural environment is also just like brighter, mm -hmm. like in color. Yes. And I've always wondered if that influences things too, because when yeah, um, actually I'm about to get on a plane to Brazil, and I, I remember the last time I was there, I was just like driving through, you know, just normal kind of countryside, but I'm like the green is so green and yes. then there's this like red clay that's so red and I remember being in Costa Rica and like some grasshopper landing on me and it had like bright orange wings and things you know that's right and you're just like compared to the nature of Cincinnati which you know <laughs> we, we don't get a lot of bright vibrant colors naturally yes. uh -huh. in, the, in the thing and so I kind of always wondered like does that also maybe influence the way you know what we what seems appropriate for the environment well mm -hmm. like nature looks like this so why don't we dress like this? That's or why right. Why don't we, uh, you know, and, and, and this is a perfect example of that because we have literally insect wings that yes, are super that are, vibrant. That are like jewels, right? Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. They're so yes. gorgeous. Yes. So gorgeous. Well, maybe we should keep moving. We've got a lot keep, to keep see. Moving. I yes. know. And, and we're kind of going to probably have to start running past things, which is yes. a shame because this is a super fascinating part of the show, especially this room. I love, I'm just a sucker for walking into yes. a, a space where you're surrounded by art. Yes. Like, so this is, a, this is a wall hanging. And as we heard from uh, the curator from the V&A in London, mm -hmm. this was found um, on the streets of Brooklyn. Yeah. And someone said, Did you, do you want it? Someone contacted the museum. And they said, of course. <laughs> so again, this is so vibrant. And this is an immersive experience. Yeah. Meant to show the joy in nature, the, you know, the floral beauty, the... Uh, you know, the geometric shapes and uh, sizes that surround all of us. So again, uh, you know, uh, it could be interpreted as someone having a victory, you know, winning uh, uh, an effort that is important. Mm -hmm. But it's also reflective of all the daily struggles that people go through. And when I saw this for the first time hanging in this space over here at the Cincinnati Art Museum, I said to my friend Helen, Helen, I have so many of these at home and I am constantly wanting to get rid of them. <laughs> now I think I have to be a little more respectful. That's hilarious because I think whenever I tell the, <laughs> tell the story, when I actually, you, you did it the opposite way I would tell it, which is I bring people in here and then I show them and get them all impressed and I go, and they found it in the garbage yes. on the streets in Brooklyn. And then people go, what? So you, um, but it's so funny because you have the almost exact opposite response where you, it's almost like you kind of understand that somebody would throw it out. You're like, yeah, I would get rid of this. Like, exactly. Because it's a natural dust catcher. And over time, over several years of living in India and going there, uh -huh. going back there, so many people have given me, you know, given us gifts of these hangings. Oh, really? And they are immersive. 
they cover huge expanses of wall space, yeah. which we do not have. Right. So oh I am gosh. happy to bring it to our esteemed curator over here to see if she wants any of that. You can save the trouble of putting it out in the trash and then letting <laughs> somebody else discover it. You can just bring it straight here. Exactly. That exactly. is so funny. Yeah. So, you know, uh, th those were a little bit more kind of things for the home and, and some of the more um, domestic stuff we had been looking at. And we, there's an area of the show that's sort of all themed around the sacred and religion in mm -hmm. India. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things people, again, we were talking about the scale of the country. Um, I think people don't realize how incredibly diverse religiously mm -hmm. um, India is. So, right. I mean, you have all the major religions represented and, and then some. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this piece here that I just think is just jaw-droppingly amazing, amazing, beautiful, weird, and it is this talismanic shirt that has the entire Quran written on it in this teeny tiny little script. Yes, yes. And it is gorgeous. It is also just like, it. the cloth looks very papery, uh -huh. so there's something about it that also just feels like you're wearing like a book. Mm -hmm. All 6,236 verses of the Quran. Wow. Yes. And of course, this is meant to be like a mantra, yeah. like a talisman with protective qualities. So the person wearing it obviously comes from a very high socioeconomic background, uh, you know, uh, uh, an important position in court or whatever. Uh, he would probably, he would definitely wear it under his outer garments. Right. So this would be an undergarment. And you can see the stains under his uh, arms over there. So you can tell that this has been used quite yeah. uh, quite heavily. You see the medallions over there, which are very symbolic of Islamic art. Uh, lots and lots of calligraphy and designs and floral patterns, all symbolic of Islamic art. And uh, again, like you said, Russell, India is a multicultural, interdisciplinary, all over kind of experience. Uh, with all the religions um, represented. Uh, there's a significant Islamic community. Hinduism is the largest uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, religion, uh, but there is Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Christianity, mm -hmm. Zoroastrianism. Uh, there's a very uh, significant Jewish community, Armenian Jewish community. So there's a very high level of religious tolerance. Yeah. It's a very secular democracy until recently mm. and uh, you know just recently in the last 10 years or so there's been a lot of nationalistic jingoistic kind of um fervor um sort it's of like everywhere <laughs> sort of yes yes that's uh, interesting that's interesting even, it's like i didn't i didn't know that india was also experiencing yes a, yes very a much nationalistic so. rise it's pretty very much, much so. every everywhere yes. at this point yeah. yes and that is to say because you can never become a hindu you can never convert to Hinduism. You have to be born a Hindu. Really? Yes. So I have no idea about with, this. With uh, 60% of 4 billion people being Hindus, there, there was the fear in certain groups of people that Hinduism would die away. Okay. So, um, you know, so that was the basis of, you know, this religious fervor, this completely uh, pro-Hindu sort of affect and attitude in society. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, you can never convert to Hinduism. Oh, wow. You can practice Hinduism, but you must be born a Hindu. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, we have, I mean, we have 
um, Jainism and yeah, Christianity. Jain, right. Yeah, yes. we, you, there's a large crucifix uh, piece over here um, that, you know, just to kind of represent uh, Christianity mm -hmm. and we're passing by several things. Mm -hmm. There's this amazing hanging here that I think is just one of the, this is one of my favorite pieces in this show. Right. Um, this hanging, uh, is it uh, Gangama? Yes. Gangama uh -huh. hanging. Um, and it's, it's uh, it looks to me, and I, 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 maybe you know a little bit more about it, but it looks like this is sort of just sort of hand dyed, almost mm -hmm. like painted, like on directly onto the fabric. Absolutely. And sort of different than the ecot process we were talking about. It's right. A it's a lot more tight and, uh -huh. and precise, so you can just t tell somebody was doing it by hand. Right. And and these uh, sort of renderings of uh, religious or mythological um, uh, or uh, you know stories based on le legend are. Uh, you know, represented and reproduced very frequently for bed covers, mm -hmm. for wall hangings, for tablecloths, for anything that you can think of, uh, except for floor mats, because we would not step on a god or a goddess. Uh, you see these everywhere in Indian homes. And again, you know, Gangama is the resident deity of Andhra Pradesh, where this wall hanging is from. Okay. Um, but uh, she would be an avatar, you know, an avatar, as you would say. In Sanskrit, you would pronounce it avatar, which mm -hmm. is uh, another rendition, an incarnation of Vishnu or Lakshmi. And she represents everything good. So she would, she has many hands because there's lots of work to do. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you have people with many heads, many hands, uh, just sort of signifying the nature of the work that has to be done in order to maintain goodness in life and society. And there is never an end to that kind of work. Um, so, you know, she's fighting all kinds of demons. She's, you know, uh, she has her hand on many things. In fact, there is a demon who whose skull she's holding mm -hmm. in her fingers over here in her hand. And so, I mean, you know, there are lots and lots of legends associated with Gangama. And if we go on along this way to the yeah. epics of Ramayana and Mahabharata. Yeah, we should, we should go while we're talking about it. Let's yes. move on down that way. Yes. Uh, isn't the Ramayana over here somewhere? Oh, you know what? It's on the other side. Oh, it is on the other side. Yeah. Okay, then let's... Let, uh, we can just talk about the, uh, the, the jama. jama. Okay, so the Jama is literally means a frock. Okay? And so this is what uh, uh, men would wear in the Mughal court in Mughal India. Okay. So this is from a later era, 1700 to 1800. This is 1867. The Mughals were there from the 1300s to roughly the 16, uh, you know, to the 1700s. The Taj Mahal was built in 1650-ish. Um, and the way to keep things figured out is that a man who was a Hindu would have the opening on the left side. Okay. And a person, a man who was a Muslim, would have it on the right side, oh. the opening. Mm -hmm. uh, made of very, very fine cloth. This is block printed. This one over here. This is cotton trimmed with silk and um, silver gilt ribbon. So again, men would wear it. And under it, they would wear very uh, uh, narrow pants for ultimate comfort. So this is jama. And the word pajama came from here. Oh. Pajama, pa means leg. So pajama is 
is, uh, you know, a, a frock or, right. or a dress for the leg. So, okay, I have to confess something. So on uh, this Saturday, uh -huh. or last Saturday, we had Family First Saturday, and the Cultural Center of India did this program with fashion and dance, and about, I don't know, 30 minutes before it started, they said, oh, you can be our male model. Oh. And she said she and she brought me uh, an outfit to put on that was not like this exactly, but it had those pants that those you were pants. describing. Uh -huh. And on stage, she referred to them as pajama pants. <laughs> and I kind of thought like, this seems like a very royal outfit. Like it seemed very formal. So I was just like, you would sleep in these? No, you would not. <laughs> now it makes a lot more sense. She was right. saying like, like. That's just what they're called. Right, yeah. right. That's so funny. I so not... uh, colloquially, they call they're called kurta and pajama. Okay, kurta and pajama. But the pajamas, the proper uh, word for it is sherwani. Okay. So they're tight pants made of loose cotton, and they're very very comfortable. Okay. And again, to accommodate the hot climate, the humidity in the south, the dryness in the north. So this is the Ramayan story. Okay. So Ramayana, the epic is older than the Mahabharata. And in Ramayana, the, the god Rama is an avatar of Vishnu, mm -hmm. okay? And he fights Ravana, who is the many-headed demon, because Ravana had stolen his wife, had stolen Rama's wife. And so there's a horrific battle that ensues over good and evil. Ram is held, helped by the Hanuman, by Hanuman monkey gods oh cool and they invade ravana's territory and over a series of amazing feats uh, um, ravana is conquered and ram comes back uh, from exile um, with his wife sita so again all these stories are about the journey about finding yourself finding his manhood finding his purpose and the in the mahabharat the avatar of Vishnu is Krishna, and Krishna is giving advice to Arjun on how to live life and how to make uh, the most uh, amazing uh, transformative decisions which are going to serve everyone well. So there's a very moral and philosophical and ethical side to all of this mm -hmm. beyond religion. So it's beyond dogma. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's it, when you're talking about the avatars here and there, it's something interesting that I don't think a lot of people understand about Hinduism. And mm -hmm. certainly, I'm no expert either. I just sort of, you know, have picked up a little bit here and there. But that idea of um, the way things are kind of like nested inside and like it's like everything can be all and one yes. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's, it's an interesting um, idea that's maybe at one hand feels very foreign to maybe somebody who grew up in just like a Christian home. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, mm -hmm. it's not that different than the, the Trinity mm -hmm. in the way that you're sort of, ex you can understand this thing can be many things mm -hmm. or this thing can be one thing. Right. And it's, there's like many facets to one thing. Exactly. So I, I think you hit upon a very uh, critical idea, which is that the part is as much a part of the whole mm -hmm. as the whole is a part of the part. Yeah. So that's why people are, you know, they believe in karma mm -hmm. and they believe in reincarnation in Hinduism. And this is not to deny or to negate the terrible things that happen to people in this life. But they feel that people feel, especially people who uh, come from very oppressive situations, they feel that it is their karma to go through 
the difficulty so that they can come into a, an awareness of their bigger presence in this cosmos. So it, it's a very, very freeing and liberating idea, uh, but it does not take away from the challenges of really having difficult lives. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to walk around the corner here. Uh, and I, I want to show you the, the protest, the khadi that yeah. Gandhi, Gandhiji wore. Um, so he carried a loom with him yeah. and he spun cloth at least for an hour every day. So he had a portable loom mm -hmm. and he had, he encouraged other people who were attending his meetings in droves to spin as well as a way of protesting the fact that starting from the 1780s or so, the British caught on that the textile industry was huge in India. They had 60% of the world's market share and they wanted divs into that. Yeah. And so what the British did was, you know, they, they sort of, you know, looked down upon all the hand-woven, the handmade, the hand-processed, hand-dyed uh, phenomenon. And they went to Lancaster, Manchester, and so on and so forth, and made these cotton mills and silk mills, which were bringing out yarns and yarns, uh, yards and yards of uh, cloth. Um, and so in the, starting from the, uh, 1840s to about 1947, which is when we got independence from the British, uh, women in good families, such as my grandmother, uh, they were um, uh, organizing these huge neighborhood parties where all the women would go out and they would set afire all their British-made saris. Oh my gosh. And so my poor grandmother, this beautiful, elegant woman who had, who was not very experienced in anything except reading books and having a great life. Uh, she went to jail for several weeks along with her people and she was willing to do that uh, as a way of protesting uh, British oppression and colonialism and so on and so forth. Wow, and, and of course like this is why the, the spinning wheel is on the Indian flag. It is on the Indian flag, exactly. Which I will admit I did not realize. Yes. I just sort of, it's one of those things you just see flags and you go, oh yeah, there's a little shape in the middle of it right. and you don't stop and think about it. And I, it's it's really fascinating. And yes. I think it's a great way of... of and there you see Gandhiji spinning and uh, you know making cloth. Yeah. And of course the spinning wheel is a symbol of self-determination that with your simple individual daily efforts, you can change the, the course of history. And that's what people came to an awareness of. Yeah. That, you know, all was not lost. Just because the British had been there for hundreds of years did not mean that they were going to continue. Mm. So this was a way of saying, you know, thank you. You've given us great in infrastructure. You've given us a great education system as a model. And now it's time to say goodbye. Yes. You well, know. that's that is a perfect ending because I think it is now time for us to say goodbye oh. because I think the the show is opening for the public and we're going to uh, not have a quiet recording space anymore. So yes. thank you so much for being my guest. Anna. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are The Fabric of India, 
Life, Jillian Waring, and Collecting Calligraphy, Arts of the Islamic World. Join us on Sunday, November 18th at 3 p.m. for a gallery experience all about the fabric of India. Enjoy an outside perspective on the exhibition from Arti Sandhu, Associate Professor of Fashion Design at the University of Cincinnati. For program reservations and more information, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Ofran Musicale by Bacalao. And like always, please rate and review us. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. <laughs>